Our next speaker, moving on, is Danny Meesday. Um, Danny has spent a considerable amount of her childhood curled up inside a pillowcase pretending to be a dinosaur egg. Since that time, she's become the conservator of natural sciences for Museum Victoria. Danny's love of museum conservation began the first time she saw an X-ray of a painting. She trained as an objects conservator at the University of Melbourne's Masters of Cultural Material Conservation program, and then stepped sideways into the sciences and never looked back. Danny. I always pick the longest route to get on the stage, I don't know why. <laughs> um, thank you everyone for having me and thank you to the laboratory for having me back. Have you ever noticed that there is a difference between good taxidermy and shit taxidermy? <laughs> it's often very subtle. Um, I find the easiest clue is if you have to fight the urge to kill it with fire or you find it's really hard to sleep without the lights on after you've seen it, um, then it's generally speaking bad taxidermy. But like I said, quite subtle, so don't feel bad if you haven't noticed it before. You probably will now. Carl Akeley, a.k.a. the father of modern taxidermy, was born in 1864 in Clarendon, New York. Carl's house was not a happy one. His parents lost three children after Carl, and his family was crippled by debt, mostly because his father had paid off a man to take his place in the Civil War, and the man inconveniently survived and lived for a long time religiously collecting interest. Right from birth, Carl was obsessed with preserving nature. As a child, he taught himself taxidermy from a book and spent hours experimenting in his room. His family briefly considered sending him to an asylum. But at 19, Carl happily turned his back on the family farm and headed to seek his destiny as a professional taxidermist, accepting a position with Ward's Natural History in Rochester, New York. Ward's was essentially a factory producing natural history specimens for museums and private collectors. The workshop at Ward's was probably the unhealthiest workplace in the United States. There were fumes from vats of preserving alcohol and formaldehyde, open barrels of arsenic trioxide, bubbling tanks full of boiling bones. Just a delight for all the senses, really. Workers at Ward's frequently came down with mange and bubonic plague and anthrax and rabies. They lost all the fingernails on their chemical-ravaged hands. But despite landing this dream job, Akeley was totally dissatisfied with the quality of the taxidermy that was being produced at Ward's. Because taxidermy back then was essentially no different to upholstery. The skins were simply stuffed with as much sawdust as they could take. There was little art to it, and there was certainly no science. Carl was determined that there has to be a better way of not only skinning the specimens to make fewer incisions and kind of Frankensteining them back together, but also to create a more sculptural body form to mount the skins to. So he began to stay back late after work, experimenting with new materials and new techniques, attempting to get the lifelike results that he was sure must be possible. And these new techniques were not all that Carl was learning at Ward's. Professor Ward was also a great thinker on the brand new ideas that had been called ecology, the understanding that an animal had a larger interdependent relationship with its habitat. The concept of extinction, and more specifically that extinction could be caused by people, was first rearing its head. The dodo and the great orc were already gone by this, type, by this point, and the last confirmed wild passenger pigeon would be shot just seven years after Akeley started at Ward's. To Carl, the idea of preserving animals with taxidermy was taking on another level of meaning, that they could become a record of nature before it was plundered, and maybe the only way that people could experience and study these animals in the future. 
Unfortunately, his all-night experimentation to find more perfect preservation techniques were leaving him exhausted during the day, and he was caught napping on the job, an offence that saw him sacked on the spot. Carl seized at this cruel turn of fate, but little did he know that fate had something coming down the tracks that would hit him like a steam train hitting an elephant. What happened was, a steam train hit an elephant. <laughs> Actually, a steam, steam train hit the most famous elephant in the English-speaking world, Jumbo, a 5.9-tonne African bush elephant who belonged to P.T. Barnum Circus. Jumbo was mercifully killed on impact, and Barnum was not really all that phased about the loss of his biggest asset. He figured the punters would come to see Jumbo alive or dead, so he simply dressed the female elephants in his company in black mourning veils and sent a telegram towards Natural Science asking for a taxidermist to be dispatched at once. There was only one man capable of the job, and it was Carl Akeley, so Ward sent him to collect the elephant. The first ever taxidermied elephant was revealed at a memorial banquet for Jumbo and was so lifelike that Akeley's place as America's hot new taxidermist was cemented. And because the turn of the century was a really weird and disturbing time... <laughs> wait for it. The guests at the banquet ate Jumbo's powdered tusks set in aspic for dessert. <laughs> Akeley took a position at the Milwaukee Public Museum where he, first, where he made the first of his famous wildlife dioramas. These dioramas, which would, he would become world famous, showed taxidermy with a level of detail that had never before been seen. There were veins, wrinkles, tendons, and they were all replicated in the sculptured body forms to make the animals as true to life as possible. He also painstakingly re recreated their habitats with wax cast leaves and paper grasses, all sprinkled generously with arsenic to keep the pests down. These are essentially the world's first nature documentaries, an educational tool to teach ecology and bring the wonders of the natural world to the people. He employed a painter to render a false, perspe false perspective landscape on a curved backdrop and gave the world its first virtual reality experience, part 3D, part 2D, and the effect was breathtaking. Akeley's career was gaining momentum and the proud young man headed to the barber for a, for a celebratory trim and shave. And this was to be a life-changing haircut because it was there that he was introduced to the wife of his barber, Delia. And Carl was immediately drawn to this unflinchingly bold young woman. Delia's early life, like many female historical figures, is not well documented. But it seems that she ran away from her Wisconsin home at an early age. Her nickname, Mickey, referenced both her Irish heritage and her fiery temper. And there is some confusion as to whether she was born in 1869 or 1875. And this might not seem like a huge difference, but it does change the age that she started her hot affair with Carl Akeley from when she was 21 to when she was 15. <laughs> In any case, the pair were soon inseparable, living and working side by side. Delia casting leaves and flowers by the thousands and learning to clean skins. Their work attracted the attention of the Field Museum in Chicago and Carl became their chief taxidermist in 1896. The Field also sent the newly married Carl and Delia on their first expedition to Africa to collect elephants on Mount Kenya. The museum wanted a scene uh, depicting two bulls fighting and they each had a permit for two elephants. And Carl did shoot too, although both in self-defence while he was nearly being trampled. And one was a female and the other was a small male with only a single tusk. Delia took down the largest bull elephant ever seen on the mountain. These specimens are still on display at the Field Museum and the small bull with one tusk shows uncharacteristically poor condition for an Akeley specimen. This, uh, this is because Carl deliberately overstuffed this specimen to make it seem less tiny compared to the giant collected by his wife. 
It was also on this first expedition that the Akeleys employed a young Kikuyu boy to be a guide and porter, whose name was Jiyunyu Murumbu, but the Akeleys called him Bill because, you know. Um, <laughs> and, they joined, and he joined them on almost all expeditions in the future and would save Carl's life at least twice, although saving Carl's life soon became a common theme for every expedition they went on. In 1909, Carl moved to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and he made several, several more African expeditions for this museum, one famously with former President Theodore Roosevelt, just three weeks after his eight years in office was up. During his presidency, Roosevelt had protected 230 million acres of public land as national park and monuments. He was a passionate conservationist. His expedition collected 11,400 specimens of insects, birds, fish and mammals from an area of several thousand kilometres. If this seems excessive, consider that at the time hunters in Africa were being paid by colonists to clear animals from plantations had killed over 1,000 elephants each, while the Roosevelt expedition only co collected 11 for science. So you can see where the museum's urgency to record and understand these animals was coming from. Between land clearing and big game hunting, extinction just kind of felt inevitable. Carl, in particular, was outraged that these animals may disappear more quickly than they could be studied. Carl's expeditions in Africa were marked with personal misfortune. He had a Pokemon trainer's attitude to tropical diseases. He just had to catch them all. <laughs> Rat bite fever, meningitis, malaria, dysentery, blackwater fever, parasites. He developed open ulcers on his hands that refused to heal. He was attacked by a leopard. Um, and endured a struggle for hours with the creature's fangs sunk deep into him until he finally managed to suffocate it by forcing his fist further into its throat. <laughs> he was gored by an elephant which stamped on his chest and broke his ribs, leaving him physically and mentally scarred. He suffered a series of panic attacks with face with elephants in the future. And in all of these misfortunes, Delia was by Carl's side, bringing him back from the brink of death over and over again, soothing fevers, cleaning wounds and emptying bedpans. After his elephant attack, she and Bill led a rescue up Mount Kenya in the middle of the night. The Swahili and Kikuyu porters were on the brink of mutiny at being asked to risk their lives for a man that they were sure was already dead. So she resorted to mocking the porters as crying babies. And at one point, she even held the guides, bound, the guides bound in at rifle point to keep them climbing in the icy darkness. Delia and Bill also bore the brunt of Carl's mental wounds, absorbing his fury when they took the shots that he had become too panicked to take. At one point, he even slapped his dear friend Bill across the face for firing a gun to frighten an elephant that was about to charge the party. Despite injury and illness, Carl was determined. He had a specific vision for the museum, a grand hall of African dioramas, and he wasn't leaving until he had meticulously studied the animals he needed. He was also very particular about the specimens he collected, and they went for months seeing giraffes that were just too short, and so many elephants which were not the perfect bull, the perfect cow, and the perfect calf for his diorama. At one point, Delia is recorded in saying, just let me go home. I'll keep the house for the rest of my life. With Carl lost in his feverish diorama visions, the expeditions became lonely for Delia. But she was fascinated by the primates which surrounded them, and she began making insightful notes on their behaviours and relationships. And many of her observations have been uh, verified by studies conducted since. She found a friend in a vervet monkey, which she trapped in a basket. She named it JT Junior, and Delia loved this monkey. And although she fretted it was cruel to keep him captive, she could never quite bring herself to let him go. Soon the monkey had its own porter and an umbrella bearer to keep him in the shade as the expedition travelled. <laughs> and the monkey shared her tent, and she increasingly insisted to, to Carl that the tent was not really big enough for three. 
When they returned to New York, JT Jr. came with them, and Delia made a point to never discipline the monkey, as she believed that it would interfere with her scientific observations. JT Jr. ripped the button off every dress she owned, smashed plates, tore down the wallpaper. He learned to unlock doors and terrorise their neighbour by shrieking and flinging bubbles while she was taking a bubble bath. <laughs> Delia published a book called JT Jr., The Biography of an African Monkey, and began to rarely leave the apartment because she worried that the monkey would be distressed. Carl was a bit embarrassed by Delia's obsession and began spending longer and longer hours at the museum. Soon he stopped coming home for days at a time. The first time that JT Jr. bit Delia, he nicked a tendon in her ankle and the wound became septic. Carl came home three days later and found his wife gravely ill and in danger of losing her leg. Delia refused to be taken to the hospital, insisted that her surgery be performed in the apartment so she wouldn't be away from JT. <laughs> Delia was confined to bed for three months. Carl did not nurse her. The war broke out and Carl was frustrated by how quickly his funding was drying up. He began to design a camera for the field which could be panned easily to capture wildlife and inform his taxidermy. The Akeley camera was soon adopted for filming the war and were used extensively in early Hollywood films. The first full-length documentary, Nanook of the North, was filmed on an Akeley camera. The money coming in from the cam cameras was helpful, but it was still not enough to realise his vision. Meanwhile, JT Jr. had bit Delia two more times. The final occasion, he severed a, a nerve in her wrist and Kyle finally put his foot down and sent the monkey to a zoo. Delia mourned JT like a lost child and she sold her elephant ivory to Carl's museum without his knowledge, took the money and disappeared. She left a note that said that she had been called on enough in Africa to sit through the night at the bedside of dying, incoherent young men, that she may as well be put, to, put the skills to use in the war. Carl waited for her return to America fretfully, fearing the worst, and when he finally found her, he realised that she'd been home for months, and although she frequently visited JT at the zoo, she had never come home to see Carl. Their divorce was finalised in 1924. Both Delia and Carl remarried, Delia to Dr Warren Howe, a businessman, and Carl to Mary Job, another badass explorer, because the man had a type, and who, um, who by this point already had a mountain named after her. Delia and Carl went, both went back to Africa, but on separate expeditions. Delia led a one-woman expedition for the Brooklyn Museum, that is to say one white woman and 20 or 30 porters, and became the first Western woman to cross the continent of Africa on foot. She lived with the tribes in the Uturi Forest in the Congo and found them to be, quote, intelligent, friendly, and much more understanding than we are. She lived to 100 years old, or 95, depending on what birthday you believe. <laughs> Carl's expedition was to study the mysterious mountain gorilla. Stories filtering out of the Belgian Congo said that the gorilla could tie a rifle into a pretzel, that they were 20 feet tall, and that they snatched women to have their beastly way with them. Carl was determined to try out his new camera and study the specimens for the museum. Far from the King Kong monster in the myths, Carl found the gorillas so close to human that he's quoted in saying, it took all of my scientific ardour to keep from feeling like a murderer. He was a magnificent creature with the face of an amiable giant who would do no harm except in self-defence or in defence of his friends. Of the two, I was the savage and the aggressor. Inspired by his old pal Teddy Roosevelt, Carl began a relentless campaign petitioning King Albert I of Belgium to create a nature preserve to protect the mountain gorillas from hunting and habitat loss. His last expedition was to chart the nature preserve that was to become the Veruga National Park, Africa's first national park, and to take a census of the gorilla population there. Whilst on Mount Mikino, Carl caught his usual bevy of tropical diseases and took a sharp decline. 
Mary, his wife of two years, took her turn nursing Carl, and after a few days he passed, and she and a sobbing Bill buried him on the mountain. Mary led the rest of the expedition herself. A couple of weeks ago, the National Park Service in the USA celebrated its 100-year anniversary. The National Park System is the cornerstone of biodiversity conservation and the legacy of the Roosevelt's, the Akeleys and other explorers whose lives were a call to arm for the wise stewardship of nature. There are currently only 800 mountain gorillas left in the wild and it's possible without Akeley's insistence that their habitat be protected that this number would be much lower. It might even be zero. Carl and Delia's other legacy is the Carl E. Akeley Hall of African Mammals at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. The Akeley's goal of protection and preservation was applied inside their dioramas too, as they insisted on a new standard of skin preservation, which has allowed the specimens to withstand the rigours of time, be utilised by science and to inspire generations of young explorers for the last century, and hopefully for a long time into the future. Thanks. <laughs>